From 9 News in Denver, Colorado, this is Blame, an ongoing investigation into a mother's death, her husband's secrets, and the lax police work that put Blame squarely on the shoulders of their six-year-old son. Was the shooting of Jill Wells really an accident? Join 9 Wants to Know in our pursuit to discover, is someone else to blame? A gunshot echoes across a windswept prairie. He's accidentally shot my wife. A young mother, dead. Knowing everything you know, we have no proof of that we know right. now. An investigation over before it began. That child was innocent. I feel like I failed him too. Gut feelings. Oh man, if I just would have known this a long time there ago. There was a lot of red flags. And an unanswered question. The preponderance of evidence. Oh, I would have done something about this. This really points to a homicide. Was a six-year-old really to blame? The case is still open. Yeah, I, I'm... I've chose to leave it that way. That's Lincoln County's current sheriff, Tom Nestor. He took office in 2007 and reopened the investigation into the death of Jill Wells the next year. In the hope that? You know, I hope that maybe even your investigation, I hope that something comes forward that we don't have that will help us, even if Mike Wells is gone. If he's responsible for this, I would love to prove that. Mike Wells is gone, dead of a drug overdose, never seriously questioned in Jill's death. Still, Nestor hopes there's something else he can do for Mike and Jill's son, the six-year-old boy blamed for the shooting. And I would love to be able to tell Tanner that, you know, it's been 15 years and this, this young man's lived with this his whole life. And, you know, I think it's our goal to, whether it helps him or not, to tell him that he wasn't responsible for it. You know, I, I think that's our primary goal. Our, obviously, our secondary goal was to arrest whoever was responsible for it. So, yeah, I'm going to leave it open. I, I choose not to close this case as long as I'm in office. An investigation, any investigation, is a matter of answering a series of questions. Some can be extremely important, like which gun was used to fire the fatal shot. Figuring that out can crack a case. Some can be inconsequential, like what time did the victim have breakfast? Figuring that out by itself may not lead to any startling realizations, but it can help fill in the picture of what happened or help you fit the pieces of the puzzle together. As we've worked to determine all we can about the day Joe Wells died, we've faced questions, some extremely important, some relatively inconsequential. I was just watching him the line and I went to get his gun to load it. He was shooting mine and then when I came back he has a hard time to lever it and when he levered it and pulled it up, it just went, it went off. When we started looking into this case, we thought the recording of the interviews with Mike Wells and Tanner were missing. That's because at one point, Nestor and members of his department thought they were lost forever. It seemed like that could be a sign of something troubling, the disappearance of important evidence. But we've played parts of them in earlier episodes. Um, what kind of gun were you shooting? A rifle. A Turns out it was a bureaucratic mix-up. The old tapes had been sent off to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation in 2008 and never came back. The audio was transferred onto CDs that were in the files of Lincoln County the whole time. 
We've encountered people who flat out refuse to talk to us. Remember Jeannie, the woman Jill thought Mike was having an affair with? The one who went on to marry Mike three years after Jill's death? You've reached the voicemail box. She's the only person who can answer questions about her relationship with Mike. She's the only one who can say what he might have told her over the years about the shooting. We knocked on her door. We called. Hi, Jeannie. This is Kevin Vaughn at 9 News in Denver. We sent emails. We spoke to her husband. So far, all we have is a one-page letter declining our request for an interview. It was a start, but it didn't satisfy my curiosity or that of executive producer Nicole Vapp. Since the beginning of this, I have been wanting to hear from Jeannie. I want to know what she knows. I do too. We've tried many ways to get her to talk to us. And to date, all we have is is one letter in which she, you know, she spells out some things. I mean, she says, for example, that she cooperated with the authorities when she was questioned about this in 2008, and that she was truthful with them then. And I would point out that she said then that uh, that she and Mike were not having an affair at the time that Jill died, that her and Mike got together, you know, like a year after Jill's death. Jeannie was friends, right? Like, they went to college together, her and Jill. Jeannie and Jill went to college together, yes. So they were really good friends. Yeah, they were. They were. And, And, you know, she would have a lot of insight into this case, you know, irrespective of the questions about what her relationship with Mike was. I mean, she was good friends with Jill. And And she was living with them at the time, right? She needed a place to live? Well, we'd heard that at one point. Oh, we need to ask her about it. Yeah. I just wonder what it was like for Mike and the kids to come back to Woodland Park tell her her best friend was dead what happened i mean that must have been so surreal and weird we know Jeannie was around that weekend lots of people have talked about her being at the funeral and at the house in the days afterwards um you know in the letter to us and in what she told the lincoln county authorities in 2008 she said that she never talked to mike about jill's death that he never brought it up and she never asked oh i just how could you not i i'm snoopy so i guess i would I'd ask. I'd want to know, especially they got married. Yeah, they did get married and were married for about three years, you know. Mm -hmm. So where does it stand? We've been trying to get an interview with her and we've knocked on her door. We've tried some friends. We're going to keep trying, obviously. One of the things she did say in the letter she wrote me was that she wondered what good might come from this. Of course, we think that some good can come from this. That's part of why Mm -hmm. we're doing it. But... um, You know, she asked a question that is a difficult question. Is it better for Tanner to think that he accidentally killed his mother or that his father intentionally killed her and blamed him? We're not ready to give up. We want to hear what she has to say. In some cases, we've tracked down people we thought would be important only to find out they couldn't really help us. Remember William Sylvester? He was the district attorney who didn't recall if he'd gone to the ranch after Jill's death. The report that was made at the time was that her six-year-old son was trying to uh, cock a rifle and that the rifle went off and uh, she was she was hit in the head and killed. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering first of all, if you remember the, the incident. Boy, I sure don't, Kevin, to be honest with you. Um, <clears throat> 2001. You sure I was there? The official report on the shooting, which has plenty of problems, says Sylvester was there, along with Sheriff Leroy Yowell, Under Sheriff Alan Yowell, and Coroner Don Bender. Figuring out whether he was would give us a better understanding of the accuracy of the two-page report on Jill's death. 
So how could someone just forget being there? In this case, getting the answer required us to double back to people we talked to previously, some of whom had been reluctant to discuss what they saw and felt on March 28, 2001, the other first responders at the scene that day. We've heard the suspicions of Connie Webb, an EMT and victims advocate, and her husband, firefighter Bob Webb, that things just didn't feel right. But four others raced to help after Mike Wells called 911, and some of them have never been questioned in any detail about what they saw, what they remember, and didn't want to talk until after we'd launched this podcast. Finally, they agreed to get together and talk to us as a group. Victims Advocate, Juliet Lundy, EMTs Patrick Leonard and Michelle Leonard, firefighter Carlos Leonard. Do any of you know uh, William Sylvester of the street? Mm-hmm. Do you remember if he was at the scene that day? All four of them nodded yes. Their lives are intertwined in myriad ways. They've all worked together for years, and some of them are family. Patrick and Carlos are brothers. Michelle and Carlos are married. They answer each other's questions and finish each other's sentences. There was a D. Yeah, he would have been, because he was the DA in office when I started. I talked to him, and he has no... He asked me several times, are you sure I went to the scene and didn't just take a phone call? He was there. He was there? Okay. Yeah, him and Leroy talked for just a few minutes. What else will they remember that could help break this case? I remember when I got there, I seen Mike walking around. And I think, I don't know if you and I were walking with him, or if it was Connie Webb and I were walking with him, and he was spitting up and coughing and gagging and and right there just caused alarm to me. The way he was acting was yeah struck you. He wasn't by her at all. He was off between the house and yeah where we come in and just off by himself just to me he was not all on throwing up but he was you know stuff was coming out but was that, I'm sure over the years you've been to a lot of different yeah. kinds of traumatic yeah. events, did that, that seemed unusual to Unusual you? to me, yes. I just, I've never seen somebody sit there, and I've been with people that have lost loved ones, to have that kind of reaction where you're actually throwing up and gagging and, you know, he's spitting afterwards. And I just, it was just kind of a weird reaction to me. Wasn't there periods of time when he was talking normal, though, in between mm-hmm. that? Yeah, he was, mm-hmm. that was the only time. I kind of thought, you know, when I got there, you know, she was laying there, and the sheriff, and everybody was there, you know, but to me, if, if your wife had been shot, wouldn't you roll her over and help her? You know, she was still laying on the ground with, you know, gun in her hand, and looked like she's getting ready to shoot. But, did you see any evidence on him in terms of blood to indicate that he had gotten close to her or anything? I don't recall. You, you know, nobody knows how long she was there. He, he might have changed clothes, you know. It, it, you don't know. It, 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 it was just strange for her to still be laying there and him not help her. Did you think that day that something might be... Yep. Strange. I'm like, what a thing in Lincoln County to come and commit murder so and get away with it. It was what I said to myself once and to my husband. And mm-hmm. I probably said it to Patrick. <laughs> but that was my personal opinion. I didn't feel like there was a big investigation. 
you know, I didn't feel like, I think there should have been more done. It just seemed like the whole scene was packed up so fast. It went away fast. Yeah, it went away fast. And just, you know, you watch enough TV programs, you see how meticulous people can be. And to me, it wasn't meticulous enough. It just struck me funny that you wouldn't help somebody on the ground, whether it was you or me. or You, you would think you'd want to help. You'd want to go to that person. It didn't look like she'd ever been moved. The way she was laying, she was ready to shoot when she died. I mean, she was ready to pull the trigger on a shot. So when you first saw her, you don't think she'd been moved at all? I don't feel like she had. Patrick Leonard, who was on the ambulance that pulled up to the ranch, just feet behind the car carrying the sheriff and the undersheriff. I remember when another responder got there and her and Michelle was talking about going in the house. They said, well, we'll check on the kids. And they, they turned around to head to the house, and he's like, well, wait. I remember him saying, wait, don't tell the kids. They don't know what's happened yeah, yet. He, yeah, that's right. That's right. I remember I that. I remember that. He didn't want his son to know that he had <coughs> killed his mother because he didn't realize, supposedly, what. I remember that. Now yeah. that you said it, just dawned on me. Yep. I forgot all about that. Yeah, because I was expecting oh, yeah. to have the I child... <laughs> To have the child asking questions, and then when that comment was made, because yeah. that's I, that's when I had got there yeah. and we were walking up. Yeah, because he he didn't want his son didn't realize he had shot his mother is what he told us, so he didn't want us to say anything, so he would think any different. So which could be the case, yeah. right? You know, maybe they didn't know, but right. just when he blurted it out, wait, don't tell yeah. the kids they don't know what happened yet. Right. And at that time, he was lucid, ducking normal conversation. To me, I wasn't next to him, but I was at the at his pickup where this conversation was taking place. I think you wonder sometimes when when you've been on scenes and tragedy has happened, you know, how to breach that conversation with children. You know, um, do the children know, you know, they try, people try to hide the children from the truth. You know, whether it be, you know, grandma died of this or grandma died of that, it's always, they just died. So the details are something that, that people try to tend to hide from children. But to not know that you just shot your mother, it's just such a far reach. Yeah. I mean, I understand that, you know, the scene was mm -hmm. that she was laying there on the ground in position. But why all of a sudden would he be forced into the house you know, away from the mother? Was it, was it forced conversation? Was it, okay, well, let's go. I mean, what took place in order to get the child separated from mother? You know, and that, that always concerned me. What was said and how was that moment treated? Once she got in the house, Juliet spent time with Mike and she's never forgotten one thing she saw. At one point he had looked over at the child and almost gave a glaring look and I told him, it just struck me weird for him to look at his child like that. Because like I said, he may have lost his wife, but the child lost his mother, which is a completely different relationship. And I just told him not to do that, that he shouldn't look at his son that way. Can you, can you characterize what you interpreted out of that look? Was it, was it blame or guilt or anger? Or I think what? it was a mix of anger 
but I think there's guilt in there too because I don't know what the man was thinking at the time. I just know that the look struck me enough to say something because we're taught, you know, people have different reactions to the situations. But that one just kind of struck me as inappropriate. You wouldn't look at your child that way, not in that kind of a situation. Because, like, you know, like Michelle was saying, he wasn't even acting like there was anything happened. He wasn't asking where his mother was, what was going on, who were all these people. None of these typical questions that come up when your, your home basically has been invaded by strangers. And did you see the younger boy at all? I, just for a few minutes, but not much. He was, he was playing. That's all you I know. seen when I walked in there. Yeah. Yeah, playing. But one of the most important observations at the scene they talked about now was the position of Jill's body. Remember, she was prone on a mattress on the ground, a rifle in her hands aimed at a target stapled to a hay bale. One of the questions that's come up that a number of people who have looked at the scene photographs have focused on is the whole placement of her hands and the whole statement in the report that she was firing left-handed. We were never told she was left-handed or right-handed that I can remember, so I wouldn't have made that. It was a considerable amount of time, several years later, before I heard that the first time. And what did you think when you heard that? Same as most of the way through it. It's another thing that didn't add up. It didn't add up because of what he saw. And we now have an audio tape of the undersheriff talking with Mike Wells. We played it on an earlier episode. And it's clear that Mike said Jill was firing left-handed when she died. Uh, he told me fired Jill shoots left-handed. The undersheriff also described the positioning of Jill's left hand on a recording he apparently dictated at the scene. Um, call come in at 1348, and I believe it was 1411. I was the first one to go when we arrived. She was laying on a piece of styrofoam in the back of the residence. Her left hand and index finger were in the trigger of with a scope. And that's what it says in that problematic official report of the incident. That Jill was firing left-handed and that under Sheriff Yowell wrote that he had to remove her left index finger from the trigger. We've had worse scenes than this, but they were, there was nothing abnormal about yeah. them. I mean, we remember, you remember everything there is about them when you get there. Mm-hmm. This one, there was always just that itch. And there was lots of stuff that, you know, the difference between right-handed and left-handed, we didn't know that day. Didn't care. I mean, it wasn't part of what we did. But when you heard the left-handed thing, you in your mind can picture what you saw. Yeah, because you don't, I mean, that's just one of those pictures that doesn't go away. Not because it's that bad, it's just... It's always there. It'll always be there. And it was vivid enough in your mind that when you heard some years later that she was reported to be shooting left-handed, you thought to yourself that that didn't match. Right. The instant I was told that. It would have made sense that Jill was firing left-handed. She was left-handed. But that's not what Patrick Leonard or Carlos Leonard saw. Here's Carlos. I know she wasn't. That's what stuck in my head. That gun was in her right hand. Just, you know, she's laying there, right? That stuck in my head. 
deathbed all I remember it too. Well, it wouldn't have hit the way it did if she was doing it left-handed, I wouldn't think. I heard about the life insurance, but I didn't hear about being left-handed shooting until yesterday. That really surprised me. The memories of those first responders are supported by the pictures taken at the scene, including one Nicole and I have spent some time studying. There's this crime scene photo of Jill, and it's after she's died. They haven't really moved her. They've cut away some of her clothing across the back, but she's laying on her stomach, and her left arm is straight up over her head. Right, and one of the questions in this case is, is this assertion in the report that she was firing her rifle left-handed, which is what her family members say she would have been doing because she was left-handed. But in these photographs, you would expect her left arm to be in close to her body and her right arm to be extended out. That's how you would hold a rifle if you were firing it left-handed. Mm -hmm. And in these photographs, her right arm is in tight against her body, underneath her body, and her left arm is extended out in front of her. And so a number of people have suggested that these photographs do not, they're not consistent with the idea that she was firing a rifle left-handed, you know, while she was laying on her stomach. And that's a question that's been raised by a coroner that's looked at this case, by some of the first responders who were there. Well, the first responders say that our finger was still there, right? Like they do, and they say, and and the, uh, two of them, uh, uh, like she was about ready to shoot it. Again. Right, right, and two of them, an EMT and a fire chief, both say she was holding the rifle as though she would have been firing right-handed, which is the opposite of what the report says and what Mike Wells told the authorities. And so it's an inconsistency that's hard to reconcile, and it's led to questions about whether the scene was staged before the officials got there. That's just really strange. And again, another problem with this investigation, an ideal situation is that a photograph would have been taken before she was touched. She's been moved a little bit in these pictures, and so some of the people that have looked at it have said, well, that's not consistent with her firing left-handed, but she's been moved, so I'm not willing to say that, you know, that I know she was firing right-handed. Until because, you talk to those first responders. Right, and they all say she, and, they, and they're she people She had been touched. Yeah, and they're people who have guns, who fire guns, who know guns. Mm -hmm. So it's it's one more Mm -hmm. puzzling aspect of this case. The one thing about this picture that makes me so sad is you see her wedding ring. Yeah, it's hard to look at. Um, Patrick, I think in one of our earlier conversations you told me that you, you'd had some sleepless nights over this case over the years. Oh yeah, you get those. You get to, somebody calls and wants some information or not necessarily information, but you remember the call and so it always takes you a day or two to, to stop thinking about it again. You know, there's other calls, like I said, we've been on worse calls than this. And yeah, I think about them, but they don't keep me awake at night. Just simple things in my mind that didn't make sense until the day I was told she was totally left-handed, as far as shooting at least. It's the aha moment, mm -hmm. you know. Kind of fitting one of the pieces into the puzzle. You found that piece. You know, we've talked about a lot of other things and you can almost justify them some other way. <clears throat> maybe this, maybe that, but you know, you get that one aha moment. It's like, no. As far as what happened that day, I, I can tell you, I don't think the kids were even outside. 
that's my my honest opinion and I don't know that anybody would agree with me but I don't think the kids were even outside the rest of it out put together is just so fishy I mean it seems real simply like it could have been staged on a moment's notice or maybe a six-month planning trip I don't know well, the big thing that day was when he said, don't, don't tell the kids they don't know what happened yet. There again, we said, maybe the, you know, maybe the kid didn't realize he'd done it if he did. He so did it, it's it. explainable as far as maybe they don't. Even if he did it, maybe he don't know. You know, if, if my kid did something like that, I might remove him from the scene real fast too. Take him inside, go out there, check on her. You know, it's nothing touched. If one of my ch children would have shot my husband or vice versa, I would like to think that I would be over there with my husband. I would want to be clung to him. He wasn't around her. <laughs> I'm like, he wasn't around her. He just, just I'd want to be with my spouse, you know? Mm -hmm. Anything else that would have happened like that. And, and I can't say that it's 100% of the time, but you, most people would check a loved one, yeah. probably pull them up and hold them. Yeah. Well, and even if even if they, they pulled up and he, and he saw the condition, you know, that she was in. You know, the, the quick back away, skid away, run away, you know, there, there's, there's reactions that happen. They're not always the reactions we think should happen, but there are some predictable reactions to happen. Like with the gagging, you know, would it, would it have occurred right then and there? You know, would the reality 30 minutes later kick in? You know, it's, it's trauma behavior that's not always predictable. But there are some things in this particular situation that were just too calm. The sad thing is, is that it's possible that a child could accidentally shoot their parent. But we're all aware of that, that that is a possibility. But when you walk onto a scene and it just doesn't feel right, and now 15 years later, it still doesn't feel right, you gotta pay attention to those things. Because there's a reason why it still doesn't feel right. Next time on Blame. Unbelievable, I just couldn't believe it had happened. Those who cared about Jill Wells aren't alone. We were hearing rumors that it wasn't a suicide. Many others have been let down by Colorado's system. Mr. Spangler, is there anything you'd like to say? There's nothing you can talk with him about. A system where just about anyone can be a coroner. The cases that we talk about are likely the tip of the iceberg. A system that has left others wondering who is to blame. Blame is a production of KUSA-TV, Nine News, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer, Anna Houston is the producer and editor, and I'm investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. Find photographs, police reports, maps, and other evidence on 9news.com slash blame.